Well, again, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Uh, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but Uh, who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of our Lord. Well, as I said, uh, Paul is, in this passage, going to rely upon the life of someone else. He's going to rely upon the life lived by Abraham. And he's going to use Abraham then uh, to make his point. And so uh, we have almost the kind of lesson planning that would seem uh, appropriate to children. Uh, Go back in time to the life of someone uh, that they know and use that as an example for the doctrine that you're teaching today. There's two things that I want to uh, shine a light on in this passage. And the first is this. Uh, What is so great about Abraham is not his own greatness. You see, Abraham uh, would have been held high in the estimation of the Roman hearers. But what's so great about Abraham is not his own greatness. God is the one who made Abraham great. Everything meaningful and important and notable about Abraham, and the list is long, is actually God's work in and through Abraham. And that's the first thing. What's so great about Abraham is not his greatness, but God's greatness. And you know what else? This is the second thing. Abraham knew this to be true. Paul says that this was something that Abraham, as an elderly man, uh, discovered about his own life. That there's nothing great about him, but great about God. And so this passage is telling us that the Christian's greatness is not uh, his own or her own greatness. It's the greatness of God. And then out of this great work of God then flows the Christian life that is pleasing before God. So the emphasis is not on human greatness, but on the greatness of God. And it's out of the greatness of God that humans then begin to live rightly before God. 
I just have a couple of points in this sermon. The first being, what kind of man was Abraham? And then the second is, what kind of life did Abraham live? The first eight verses, Paul tells us the kind of man that Abraham was. Note at the very beginning that Paul considers Abraham a historical figure. He was a real man to Paul. I suppose that only in very liberal circles uh, are biblical figures like Abraham uh, written out of history as uh, philosophical reconstructions or historical uh, fiction. It is true to be sure that even in some evangelical circles, uh, Adam and Eve are being uh, written out of uh, world history as either uh, historical representatives of humanity or non-historical symbols of humanity. Paul believes in a historic Abraham, and he believes in a historic Adam and Eve as well. But Paul uh, not only believes that Abraham was a real man who uh, lived in real time and space, but Paul also treats Holy Scripture as truthful and dependable. That's the way uh, that we learn about Abraham. Scripture is truthful and dependable. Paul uh, makes his entire uh, argument uh, about Abraham uh, actually on the details of Scripture. He quotes Genesis uh, 15.6 at a key moment uh, at his argument. You can see that quote at Romans 4 verse 3. But then scan down in Romans, and uh, when we come to verse 7 of of chapter 4, Paul uh, turns to a piece of poetry, Psalm 32, and he not only uh, trusts the content of that poetry, but he also trusts the authorship of that poetry. He believes it is written by King David to accurately reflect the life circumstances of David. Those two things are important to notice. Abraham's a real man. And he learns about Abraham because Scripture is dependable and truthful. And so then Paul says in Romans 4.1 that uh, Abraham, he's he's the forefather of us all. And when you look at Romans 4.1, I don't want you to think that Paul is saying that Abraham is merely the forefather of the Jews. In verse 1, he's not just talking about the Jews. You remember the the congregation at Rome is a congregation filled with mostly Gentiles. Remember also that Paul has been teaching that both Jews and Gentiles, all Christians, are justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's right before us in 328. And then in Romans 329, Paul asks if God is the God of Jews only. Well, you can look at it. What's his answer? Is God the God of Jews only? No, absolutely not. He says that God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. In fact, this whole chapter is meant to show that Abraham is even the father of the uncircumcised. The proof can be uh, all the way down in Romans chapter 4. We'll look at it next week. But look at chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where he says that whoever shares the faith of Abraham has Abraham as their father. And Paul proves this by turning again to the life of Abraham. God promised Abraham what? That he would be the father of many nations. Well, what is the word from Genesis 17, 5 used for nations? Well, it's the word that Paul uses for Gentile. He'd be the father of many nations. 
And over and over again, Paul and other writers of the New Testament are going to refer uh, to uh, the Gentiles as uh, sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham. A great example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul uh, goes back and reflects upon the Exodus. And what does he uh, say the Exodus story is about? The Exodus story is about our fathers. And so Abraham, he's the forefather of anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Well, then what did Abraham understand about his own life? Still looking at 4.1, we can imagine that if Abraham were here with us right now, what would he say about his own life? And in 4.1, the word that Paul uses, the word uh, gained, you see it there in the ESV. Well, it literally means discovered. The translation could read, what then shall we say that Abraham has discovered? What has he found out? Abraham is a man who needed to discover things about his life. You know, we live in the kind of world in which everyone's about self-discovery. Many of our non-believing friends long for a time to think and experiment with their lives so that they can uh, enjoy the process of discovering who they are. Well, as Christians, we grow in our understanding of who we are, not by meditation or uh, life experiences or thinking deep thoughts or plugging ourselves into a unique kind of community. We discover who we are because we're told who we are. In our conversion, God tells us who we are, lawbreakers under a sentence. God makes us by his rich grace sensible of our sinfulness. And then living as Christians through the Bible and through prayer, through uh, life in the church among Christians who are holding out God's gospel to us, God continues to give us a discovery of who we are. He's our teacher. We don't teach ourselves about who we are. And so we, we see in verse 1 of this passage uh, that uh, we are learning about Abraham, that Abraham has uh, found out things about himself through the presence of God teaching him. There are things that Abraham's discovered about himself. You know, there's so much for us to learn about who we are as Christians. I hope, Christian, that you uh, see this. The Christian life, all of the Christian life, is in many ways uh, a life about God-centered discovery. And Paul says, what then shall we say uh, that Abraham has found? But our own lives are lives in which God is teaching us day by day. And it may be that we don't feel this. We feel ourselves in a rut. And in that rut, oftentimes, we'll turn aside from God's word and the life of the church. We'll turn aside uh, from prayer. We'll turn aside from seeking his will in our lives. And we'll, we'll fill in the gaps on our own. And we define who we are apart from God's word. Abraham wasn't that kind of man. God is teaching Abraham. And God teaches us. That we would know uh, what this life, this life of grace means for us day by day. I think there's another hint of this also in 4.1. I know we haven't left the first verse, but bear with me. Uh, right there in 4.1, Paul says, according to the flesh. 
It's an interesting phrase. You may not believe me, but uh, you should. There are a lot of articles written on Romans 4.1 and what to do with the phrase according to the flesh. Does according to the flesh uh, modify Abraham as a forefather, that he is a forefather uh, according to the flesh? I don't think so. Calvin says that this uh, phrase, according to the flesh, ought to be connected to the word gained so that, so that we can read this passage. What then shall we say that Abraham has found or gained or discovered according to the flesh? And Calvin goes on to say that this is how the majority of the, of the church fathers uh, read this verse. And I believe that that's what Paul is saying to us uh, right here. What then shall we say that Abraham has discovered according to the flesh? It gives us a picture of a real man living a real Christian life, discerning what the doctrines of grace mean to him day by day. Abraham, the forefather of all of us who call ourselves Christians, was converted through God's grace and uh, not through anything that he did. Uh, Abraham knew that he was saved by grace. And not only this, he came to see more and more the reality of verse 2. He knew that if he was justified by his works, then there would be something to boast about. But he's not justified by his works. I want you for a moment just to think about Abraham's life. He grew up in a thriving metropolis, one of the capital cities of the ancient world, Ur. And he gathered his wife, his nephew, all of his possessions. And at the age of 75 years, he left 75 years worth of an established life to do what? To wander in Canaan. And he did it. After years of traveling and haggling and strategizing, he built a new life, defeated local kings, earned respect in the, in the land in which he began to call home, and he had an heir to pass it all along to. Think about that. A recent author has uh, who is actually, she's extremely accomplished. She's accumulated numerous accomplishments uh, for someone as young as she is. And she actually says this in her memoir. She says, all my life I learned this single doctrine, that the odds are better if you rely on yourself. <laughs> Think about that. The odds are better if you rely on yourself. Well, what did our forefather Abraham discover about his life, that the odds are not better if he relies on himself, that none of his boasting matters before God. It is, I confess, captivating to me that in verses uh, 2 through 4, uh, Paul writes in such almost a question and answer way. There are times when Scripture patronizes us or seems to patronize to us, condescend to us, speak to us almost as if we are children. And I think that that's a little bit of what's happening here in Romans 4, verses 2 through 4. Uh, Paul is speaking in such a question and answer way that it feels a little patronizing. But we ought to delight in that. God desires to make himself known. Far be it for us 
to complain if we feel that God is patronizing us. And then the the way that Paul writes in 2 through 4, he says, if a man is uh, justified by his works, then to be sure he has something uh, to boast about. But then he says, but what does Scripture say? Well, Paul has been looking to Scripture since the very beginning of this letter, but he interrupts himself. But what does Scripture say? Well, Scripture says something different. If a man is justified by his works, he has something to boast about. What does Scripture say? Something different. Of course, Paul says, if a man has a job, uh, then his wages, they're not a gift, right? You feel like a child yet? It's so simple, so clear. And he says, if a man, if he has a job, his wages, would we call those a gift? Certainly we wouldn't. He earned those wages. But what then? What's, what's a gift? And, and Paul takes us from this world of works to this world of grace in these uh, few short verses. Uh, he captures the mental and emotional strain of making, making sense of life in the gospel. The Christian, the Christian works hard in life strains for the glory of God in their behavior and in their speech and in their thoughts. They should do that. But the result of all of this effort, straining effort, it it doesn't yield uh, boasting, but rather praise to God who uh, loves us and who sanctifies us day by day and who one day will glorify us. Don't you understand, my brothers and sisters, that this is very much an upside-down world, this world in which the gospel drops us into? And Abraham knew this. A man who saw many accomplishments, but does he boast? He knows it's inappropriate to boast. And we as Christians uh, strive to bring glory to our God in, in all of our behavior, speech, and thoughts. But uh, when we do so, is there anything to boast about? No, of course we fall back upon the greatness of God by a spirit uh, working through us. We're, we're saved by grace as a gift. And we live these lives that are, as Christians, mixed with uh, success and failure. Uh, but no matter, no matter what, we return again and again to the place where we began to learn that we are nothing without God's grace. We go to bed and we get up and we experience another day's worth of uh, successes and failures, all mixed together in complex ways. But we have to remind ourselves over and over and over again uh, to return to that beginning and remember that without God's grace, we're nothing. That's, That's just the upside down life of the gospel. Well, that's how Abraham lived his life. But that's also how David lived his life. Look at the example of King David. Uh, Paul quotes Psalm 32. Uh, Psalm 32 is not about David's conversion. You need to look at that this afternoon. Psalm 32 is about David uh, navigating through life as a believer who's saved by grace. Uh, He lives his life with this mixture of successes and failures. And in God's grace, he's made aware of his sinfulness. And with a very good conscience, King David acknowledges that sin before God, knowing that he is not condemned, that his sin doesn't define him before God. And in this very psalm, in Psalm 32, verse 6, King David actually encourages other Christians to do the same. Let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you, God. And without referring to any particular failure in Psalm 32... Without referring to any particular success, King David says, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. 
David, a broken man who experiences success, failure, great assurance, riddled with doubt, speaks before God with a good conscience, and he knows that steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. This kind of comfort of King David, this kind of comfort of Abraham, can only happen because of God's grace. Because a man, because a woman, in Jesus Christ is not measured by their works, by what they can earn. They're nothing. They need God's grace. You see, the Christian's greatness is never, never his or her own. It's rather the greatness of God who receives us not on the basis of our works, but who receives us in the absence of our works. He receives us in the admission of failure and hopelessness. In Romans 4, verse 2, Paul tells us that Abraham, a man who all of us know accomplished a great deal in his life, that man, that man who made a mark on history, that man who all Paul has to do is say Abraham and a whole flurry of stories unfold in our minds, that man, Paul says, is a man who simply believed God. That's it. And that's Abraham. And now out of this work of God to uh, save a sinner like Abraham, to save sinners like us, out of that work of God flows the Christian life that we are, by His grace, allowed to live. That's where I think Paul takes us next. What kind of life Paul did Abraham live? Now, I think we need to ask this question because of verse 12 of our passage. If you look at the very end of our passage, Paul uh, says that uh, there is an expectation on our lives that we would imitate Abraham in some way. You see what he says in verse 12. He says that we are to walk in the footsteps of Abraham. I'm not sure why the ESV translate that, translates that as footsteps. It really should be footprints. That we're to walk in the footprints of Abraham. Doesn't that sound to you, it does to me, uh, like uh, an expression of living life, a metaphor for what it's like to live life? Uh, There are numerous times in Scripture where walking is a metaphor for living life, walking in the gospel, walking in the Holy Spirit. And it really does sound like uh, a metaphor for uh, life when we consider that uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Remember, Peter's writing uh, to uh, a number of churches that are enduring uh, very serious uh, persecution. And in 1 Peter 2.21, Peter uh, talks about living a life of suffering for the gospel. And he says to those who are being persecuted, "For uh, for to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footprints 
And the suffering of our Jesus is an example of our suffering. And so this image of footprints in verse 12 of our passage uh, makes us think about uh, walking through life. And the truth of the matter is that Abraham is in our mind because Abraham did a lot of good works. He left the safety of Ur to live in the uncertainty of Canaan. He cared for Lot, his nephew, his, his dead brother's son. We have a few examples of Abraham making altars to God. We know that Abraham provided for his wife, provided for his household. We know that Abraham enjoyed God's presence, even witnessing miracles of God. We know that Abraham, he acted wisely, even strategically. Abraham, he he protected the powerless in the battle of the kings, and he delivered Lot's family. He delivered Lot's entire city. He refused to boast about that victory. There were certainly blunders in Abraham's life. He he, uh, lied about his wife to Pharaoh, and he struggled with doubt regarding God's promises, if God would indeed uh, keep those promises. We know all these things about Abraham. He was a good man, a man filled with good deeds. And in fact, what I've described to you, I have references for for each of these uh, pictures from Abraham's life. But all of these references come from the life of Abraham between the age of 75 and the age of 99. The writer of Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. This man's conversion It's hard to tell, but it likely happened uh, tied to that event of leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, because Hebrews chapter 11 tells us uh, that he exercised faith when he left Ur. So think about this. From the moment that he left Ur, Abraham believed in God. He lived a life of belief that was countercultural to his surroundings. He lived a life that was full of gospel proclamation to the culture of his day, living as a sojourner but living in a very holy way before his neighbors. In the midst of the world, he was a man who devoted himself to God. He was a spiritual head to his wife. He was a spiritual head to his entire household. And he gave all the glory to the one true God. This is Abraham. This is a man of faith. This is a Christian. And this all happened in his life between the age of 75 and 99. There's a model for us there. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 4 and verse 12. The way this man lived his life up until the age of 99, that's key, it's important. But from 75 to 99, boy, walk in that man's footprints. I want to tell you why it's important to make a big deal out of the age 99, but I want us to consider something else about this life before we uh, move to that point. You remember uh, Abraham's uh, victory over the four kings. He rescued Lot and the people of those cities. He became the hero of so many, and uh, he is honored by this mysterious uh, king, Melchizedek, for having, as the writer of Hebrews says, slaughtered those kings. That was a big day for Abraham, wasn't it? Great victory. 
liberating uh, not just his kin, but liberating uh, friends, uh, citizens of his kin in the city of Sodom. Abraham did something with 318 men that would seem uh, absolutely inconceivable, particularly as a man uh, who owns very little geography, lives in a land as a stranger, as a sojourner, and he hasn't been there for that long. And yet, <laughs> and yet, he fights off four kings, slaughters them, and liberates at least one city, maybe more. And after that busy day, Acknowledged by mysterious King Melchizedek, what does, he, what does he do? Well, Abraham goes home. Maybe has a quiet dinner with his wife. And he goes to bed under the sun of the Middle East. And he sleeps. What did he think about? Did he think about how great I am? What a wonderful day this was. And all of my days in Canaan, that one beats all of them? Maybe he did. Did he think about what this means for tomorrow? New lease on life, now people will start respecting me. Did he think about his own strategizing and how well that strategizing worked out with 318 men to do what he did? Now, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but I do want us to think about that. Abraham, a man of faith, living a gospel life, day by day, knows that he's a sinner saved by grace. God is doing extraordinary things through him. What an extraordinary day this was. And he goes home and lays in bed next to his wife and he thinks, what does he think about? There's a, an American a poet, I think he's actually a Nashville poet named Randall Jarrell. And he writes a poem that's actually about this, not Abraham. It's about going to bed at night and contemplating uh, your uh, life. And apparently someone during the day, um, uh, uh, he's thinking about a girl, and, and this girl says to him, uh, he says, I remember uh, hearing her telling me uh, how young I seem and how exceptional I am. And he goes to bed, and he's thinking, I am exceptional. And he's thinking about this. As he lays down, he says, I think of all that I have. But then it seems as though no one is really exceptional. No one has anything. I'm just merely anybody. I stand beside my grave confused with my life that is commonplace and solitary. Now, this man hears a praise from someone, you're exceptional. And he goes to bed and he ponders, am I exceptional? Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. And how amazing that he could be confused about his own life and not know who he is. Some of us sleep that way. Who am I? What is happening in my life? Is there anything meaningful about what I'm doing? Is there anything meaningful about what's happened today? We lose the ability to interpret our own lives. Well, Abraham, does he sleep that way? Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham knows that he's a nobody. He knows that everything that he has, everything that he is, comes from God. He knows who he is through the lens of what God has done for him. And on this uh, inauspicious evening, when he's had a fantastic day, and the king, uh, king of uh, uh, Salem, Melchizedek, uh, actually praises uh, Abraham, 
and he goes to bed at night, he doesn't wonder if he's exceptional or not. He knows himself. God has told him who he is. He knows that he's not great. But God, God, he's great. He goes to bed at night, perhaps trying to make sense of the promises of God, his successes, his failures, his confidence, his doubts. And on that particular day, he just, he just accomplished something big. But as he trails off into his nightly slumber, he knows how to think about the day. Maybe for a second he imagines how exceptional he is, or how great he is, or how fortunate life is. But not for long. Not for long. Because Christianity tells him how to think about his life tells us how to properly understand the life that we live day by day. Abraham knows he's not great because he knows that God is great. And he knows that he's not the master of his life's mission, even though that day was spent with extraordinary strategy. He knows he's not the master of his life's mission. God is that master in fact, Abraham knows he doesn't have a mission. God has a mission, and he works that mission through him. He understands that he is a man who has been purchased by God. He is a man who is owned by God. He is a man whose past and present and future all have a purpose for one reason, because God has a plan to restore all things for his own glory, and he will do it. Now, a man who believes that, he knows how to go home and lay in bed and close his eyes and sleep because he knows God's great. So for the past 24 years of Abraham's Christian walk, he knew how to think about his life. He knows that God is great. He knows that he is a sinner. He knows that God has a great mission. And he knows that his life is but a very tiny, minuscule part of that great mission. And do you know this about yourself? If you profess faith in God but take credit for everything that is happening in your life, then you're not walking in the footprints of faith, which Paul tells us is the example of Abraham in 4.12. When success happens, do you boast or do you praise God? Failure, when failure happens, do you become despondent? Or do you trust God? When you mortify sin in your life, do you judge others for their lack of sanctification? Or do you thank the Holy Spirit for your own day-by-day -day sanctification? When sin gets the best of you, do you evade the truth? Or you, do you confess and seek reconciliation with your brothers and sisters? Well, this is what it's like walking in the footprints of the faith of our father Abraham. But there is this small matter. There's one thing that Paul wants to show us, and it is a striking to a certain crowd in the church of Rome. All of this life as a Christian that Abraham was living, all of this life, Everything that I've quoted to you from Abraham's life comes uh, from age 75 to 99. And all of it happened before circumcision. 
Abraham was a Christian for 24 years before his circumcision. For Abraham, circumcision wasn't a saving work. How extraordinarily odd that would be for Abraham to discover about his life that circumcision had any saving benefit for him. He was saved already for many years. In fact, the way that Paul talks about circumcision in this passage, look at it carefully. Uh, Paul, at at every opportunity here in Romans 4, uh, he is uh, arguing for the fact that circumcision is never a work of Abraham because circumcision, uh, by its barest definition, is something that's done by someone else. Let Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 10. Circumcision was an act performed for Abraham, not by Abraham. Look at verse 11. Circumcision, Paul says, was received. It's received, someone else did it. And also in uh, Romans 4:11, Paul makes it clear that circumcision itself is not an active work for anyone. It's always something done uh, to someone, not by someone. And I think these little cues uh, actually uh, are worth noticing. At age 99, 24 years after becoming a a Christian, a circumcision happened to Abraham. It was never a work. It couldn't be a work. Circumcision is nothing to boast about, and it would never occur to Abraham to boast about it. Isn't that encouraging? Know how practical that is to the Roman congregation to, to hear that, there, that Abraham never considered circumcision as a work that would gain him any favor before God. He had lived life for 24 years as a Christian. He knew better than that. Do we know better than that? Or are we quick to assume that God owes us something? That I have done something better than my neighbor, and so God loves me more than my neighbor. Paul is talking about the fact that the Christian's greatness is not his or her own. It's the greatness of God. And he wants us to understand that the pleasing life of of being a Christian, it it, it doesn't flow from our own works. It flows from the work of God who saved us by grace. And this is almost impossibly hard to fathom. Every day that we live life, Christian, is a life in which we owe tremendous thanks to God. That is true, even though the thing that we have just accomplished looks like we've accomplished by our own wisdom. We owe thanks to God for that. Even though when we fail so mightily, we feel as though the best thing that we need right now is for God to turn his back on me and go away for a season. That's the best thing that could happen. It's unfathomable that your God would be with you and define you even as you fail, that you are loved by him, precious to him. You have nothing to boast about, and by his grace, you have nothing to gloat over. You've been purchased. Isn't that just impossible to fathom? How do I live each and every day like that? And yet, that's what Paul is telling us here at the end of the passage. This is what walking in the footprints of the faith of Abraham is like. It's nearly impossible. N.T. Wright says uh, that we, as Christians, we tend to treat uh, religion as if it's just this tiny little facet of our lives. 
Uh, he says that the prevailing view of religion is often like a utility company that provides us water. Uh, uh, the utility company says to us, we will pipe you the water that you need. We will arrange for a religion to become a small sub-department of your ordinary life. We almost want a religion that's like a sub-department. We want a religion that's going to be quite safe and harmless to us. Church life carefully separated off from everything else in the world, whether it be politics or art or sex or economics or whatever. Those who want it can have just enough to keep them going. This is what N.T. Wright says. We so often do that in our Christian walk. I don't need all of it. Just enough to keep me going. You're right, he goes on to say that those who don't want their life and their way of life disrupted by anything religious can enjoy driving along concrete roads, visiting concrete-based shopping malls, living in a concrete-floored house, live as if the rumor of God never existed. That phrase almost haunts me. Do we as Christians ever catch ourselves living as if the rumor of God never existed? We set them aside. Well, this is not how Christians ought to live. Conversion was a, was a moment in the past, and now I simply get back to my normal life as if I need religion only some of the time. But I have what I need for right now. Thank you so kindly. <laughs> Nobody needs religion every day, do they? Well, they do. And Christian, you need grace every day. And your boasting needs to be set aside, and my boasting needs to be set aside. And your wallowing in your failures needs to be set aside, and my wallowing in my failures needs to be set aside. Because that's not how the life of faith is meant to function. We are saved by a limitless grace. It is larger than merely coping with life day by day. God's grace carries us into all of eternity, where all things will be restored. And so the failures of today, they don't define me, but neither do the successes. There's more. So Paul's admonishing us, and he's admonishing the church at Rome. The Christian's greatness is not his own or her own greatness. It's the greatness of God. And out of this greatness of God flows a Christian life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you have saved us. And then we thank you that you have saved us, and we thank you that you've saved us, and we thank you that you've saved us. It's almost impossible for that reality to color everything in our lives. Your grace is too large. It's too plentiful. Day by day, we need its reminder and so we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.